3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations through owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders, past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise that unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to late 30am. Good morning. You're Good morning. on. Morning. <laughs> You're listening to 855 AM with 3CR Thursday Breakfast. Uh, your glorious host, as always, are Max and Carly. And we're also joined with Kate. Hi. Hi. She's going to be doing head, yeah, news headlines soon. When you said morning just then, it reminded me of when I was at primary school, and you know how everyone says morning in that very <laughs> particular And then you have the copy of the teacher, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> good morning. <laughs> anyway, good morning, everyone. Um, what do we have on today? 13th of Feb. I can't believe we're midway through Feb. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I know. <laughs> no. Um, okay, so this morning uh, we're going to be playing a, co- a couple of conversations that I had actually on the weekend. Um, so I went to the St Kilda Festival and I had some feels about it. I uh, spoke to Bumpy, uh, who's an amazing Noongar woman, and um, she heads up her own um, band, Bumpy's Band, um, but also Squid Nebula, which is an amazing soul and funk band. Um, and yeah watched her perform, um, and then also caught up actually the next day with um, Neil Morris, who heads up Dreaming Now, and we had a conversation about the importance of like forging Indigenous spaces um, at music festivals, not just on stages, but also like throughout festivals, mm. um, and yeah, just like the pressures of the music industry, especially for Indigenous peoples, and also got to really delve deep into the, uh, Dreaming Now's first track, Australia Does Not Exist. Cool. Um, so, yeah, I had a really nice conversation with Neil. Awesome. I'm excited for that because we've spoken with Neil a couple of times on the show before and it's always like, such a treat. Mm. So look forward to listening to that one. Um, and then later on in the show, um, we're going to be speaking with Margaret Harvey um, and she's going to be discussing the upcoming panel, Indigenous Women Filmmakers on Self-Representation and Sovereign Storytelling. Awesome. And then at 8 o'clock, we'll be chatting with Adolf Mora, um, West Papuan activist and refugee, about the uh, rally that happened in Melbourne a few days ago, um, sort of calling for West Papuan self-determination and against the visit of Joko Widodo to Australia. And then last up in the show at quarter past eight, we'll be chatting with Eddie Sinot about the recent High Court decision that was released, um, Thompson Commonwealth and Love and Commonwealth, which, uh, where the High Court ruled that Aboriginal and Australians can't be deported as quote unquote aliens under the, the constitutional power. Hmm. So, big show. Big show. Excited for it. <laughs> but how about first up, we jump on right over to some headlines. Yeah, so, first up, more than 47 peak Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander organisations around the country have attacked the Closing the Gap results on Wednesday, branding it as evidence of a seemingly endless endless cycle of failure. So one of the major criticisms levelled at the project is that it has been doomed to fail because it was designed without the input of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. 
Of the 12 closing the gap reports released, not one has ever met more than three of the seven targets. And this year, only two of the seven targets are on track. So those being early childhood um, education and year 12 equivalents. Last month, to give some context, last month the Coalition of Peak Bodies met with the Prime Minister to agree on three major reforms to the way the government works with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, including commitment that there was greater involvement from Aboriginal Australians in decision-making and service delivery. So yesterday the Minister for Indigenous Australians, Ken White, acknowledged that more work needed to be done making sure communities were involved in the decisions about them. And the opposition, for its part, slammed the results, with Labor's spokeswoman for Indigenous Affairs, Linda Burney, saying that re- the result was absolutely dismal. And to Sydney, where a New South Wales parliamentary inquiry will re-examine violent crimes committed against gay and transgender people during the 1970s through to 2010. The inquiry is currently accepting submissions from members of the LGBTIQI community regarding their experiences and the consequences of hate crime during that period, with ACON, which is a New South Wales-based LGBTI health organisation, estimating to have resulted in around 40 deaths. Uh, The Honourable Shane Mallard said the inquiry was especially interested in crimes committed in regional areas of New South Wales. And I think this is really interesting because last year there was a big push in Victoria with Thorn Harbour Health CEO Simon Roof saying it was important for authorities to get a picture of the discrimination in policing that the community faced here. So the New South Wales Parliamentary Inquiry might result in a bigger push for Victoria to see one as well. Mm. And to Pasco Vale. Yeah. Um, yeah, really interested to hear about what's oh. happening in local news. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What? Lambing me talking about Sydney? Look, I didn't like talking about it either. No, 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 no. 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 But, um, you know, I just, yeah. yeah well, so, I I'm it's... so interested, actually, Kate, when you do, like, talk about what's happening in the, like, the local councils and... Yeah. Thing. yeah, 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 community news. Yeah, we have to be about it, even if it's not in our city. Um, we, I do have some community news for you, though, which I think um, some listeners will be very pleased about. EK Militaria, which some of you might remember is a shop in, was a shop in Pasco Vale selling Nazi memorabilia, has closed down and the property is now back on the rental market. So this follows a couple of weeks ago, it was defaced by Melbourne Anarchists, and I'm not sure if the two are connected because I didn't get to find out in time. I was going to ring, but yeah. So Red and Black Action visited the store in late January after dis- um, and after disabling surveillance cameras, they sa- sabotaged the locks, spray-painted anti-fascist slogans on the store facade and smashed a storefront window that was displaying a U.S. Confederate flag. And some of you might remember that the Nazi store made headlines last year after it was revealed that it was selling sort of Hitler Youth badges, what sticker, flags, uniforms and kind of daggers and that sort of thing. And its owner, Gary McDonald, um, wore an SS ring and was unapologetic about selling the materials. So the Jewish community groups and local residents had lodged official complaints um, about the store, but to no avail. But it seems, yeah, for at least the time being, it's not in operation anymore. And that's it for Thursday's um, headlines. Have a great day. (laughs) And but that, but just that last point that you were saying of like how that folks had been raising complaints about this store, but you know the authorities and the cops hadn't done anything about it, Mm. and it was only after this sort of you know 
very direct action. And again, we don't know whether they're connected or not, but that subsequently the store has been closed down. Like there seems to be an important point there of like that people actually weren't listening to Jewish community and others who were making complaints. And yeah. the authorities did absolutely nothing um, until there was some form of yeah, well, community there's, action. There's, there have no, there's no legal precedent for them to be able to... It's a really big conversation. It comes up pretty much every couple of months. In, a few months ago, I don't want to talk about Sydney again, but it, it did happen <laughs> in Sydney where it was being... Uh, where a flag was being sold at an auction. And again, every time these little things happen, or you know, in our case in Melbourne, it's a shop... We had this conversation about, well, should this be legal? And obviously a lot of Jewish community organisations come out and say that, you know, this is essentially re-traumatising and it's unnecessary. Um, so, yeah, and that was Red and Black Action made a point saying, um, you know, this sort of them closing down kind of proves that, I guess, affirmative direct action um, can work when maybe, yeah, can can be positive potentially. Mm. Absolutely. Um, I also just have another little community service announcement, I guess. Um, So this week is Ochre Ribbon Week. So it started yesterday, the 12th, and it goes to the 19th of February. So if you do see um, people in the community wearing um, orange ribbons, then that's because of the um, Ochre Ribbon campaign, and it's an initiative supported by the National Family Violence Prevention Legal Services Forum um, and the member organisations across Australia. And the Ochre Ribbon campaign raises awareness of the devastating impacts of family violence in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities and calls for the action to end violence against Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, especially women and children. Um, And I guess on that note, we're going to be heading now to a couple of conversations that I had um, on the weekend. So one's with Bumpy um, and then also with Neil Morris. So enjoy. This afternoon, um, I'm at the St Kilda Festival um, on beautiful Bunurong, um, the Wurundjeri lands of the Kulin Nation, and I'm here this afternoon with Bumpy. Thanks so much, Bumpy, for joining us on 3CR. Oh, thank you for having me. <laughs> Can you first start off by telling listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm Bumpy, which is, my real name is Amy, but my parents have been calling that me since I was little, and I'm a proud Noongar woman, but grew up on Gunai Kunai lands. Um, I moved up to now Melbourne about five years ago um, and play in just a couple of groups around town and yeah, kind of been doing that ever since I arrived here. Amazing. And yeah, this afternoon at St Kilda Festival, you played with Dreaming Now and then you also played your own set. Um, Yeah, tell us a little bit about how it's been playing with Dreaming Now. Yeah, absolutely amazing. Um, If you, Neil Morris is an incredible, incredible man, incredible activist. Um, an amazing hip-hop musician and so I started with them last year just predominantly keys and backing vocals and um, it's been such a powerful thing to you know perform something so close to your heart as well as like doing music which is your passion so it feels very special to be with Dreaming now. Yeah and um, I just heard your set then and there's just like a lot of funk and soul um, but you also just I think mix a lot of genres. Who were your, um, who did you kind of aspire to be when you were thinking about music? Yeah um, I grew up listening to so much pop music and um, and then I came up, when I came up I studied jazz at the VCA so that really opened my eyes to that you know really traditional um, soul, blues, like roots and um, I've kind of put that into now, I'm really obsessed with now the artist and Laura Mvula and, and people like that, yeah. 
Cool. Um, and, yeah, what gigs are coming up for you? And I think you're also releasing a single soon. Yeah, so um, I play in another project called Squid Nebula as well, and we're playing at a Cherry Bar Soul Night um, on the 20th of this month and then Bumpy is set to release a single in the in March so we'll see how that goes hopefully if I'm not on too much black fella time I'll get it going awesome um, and yeah what are the Dreaming Now sets are coming up um, that's actually a very good question there's so many um, especially you know with with um, the fires and Neil being a, a massive voice in this for First Nations communities um we have quite a lot of interstate shows coming up to just spread the word and be like, hey, you know, this, this message is important. So I couldn't tell you the date, but there are quite a lot coming up in the next couple of months. Yeah. Um, and can you tell us a bit more about the other band that you're a part of as well, Squid Nebula? Yeah. Yeah, so we all met at um, BCA. So we've been together for five years. We played at St Kilda Fest on a new music stage last year, actually. And we're like a um, reggae, new soul kind of groove band um, and we actually have an EP in the works but set to release um, later on in the year um, but yeah we've been gigging around for quite a bit as well. Great well thanks so much for joining us on 3CR. Yeah, thanks for having me. <laughs> this morning I'm joined in the studio by the ever brilliant uh, Neil Morris. Welcome Neil. Thank you. Thanks so much for coming in, um, especially after yesterday. I ran into you at the St Kilda Festival um, down on yeah, the Bunurong Wandering Lands of the Kulin Nation. And um, I was actually hoping to go to the festival and interview a lot of mob. There were a lot of mob performing there yesterday. Um, wanted to yarn up to Paul and Kian. I managed to have a short interview with Bumpy. <laughs> but there was just something about the festival um, where I didn't feel like it was the right place to be talking to mob. It didn't feel like I had the space to, you know, engage with mob um, and talk about, you know, the issues that we wanted to be talking about. Um, so, yeah, thank you so much for yeah, offering up your time to come and speak with me today. <laughs> Pleasure. Um, and, yeah, what was your experience of performing yesterday. You performed at 1pm on a massive stage, but yep. personally, um, I didn't look at the set um, before going to the festival, and I thought that Dreaming Now would be put on much later. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, like, I guess there's a very uh, variety of ways you could probably look at it. Um, you know, programming, you can predict certain things, and it's not always how the actual programmer is thinking um, and what you might assume is their reason for programming might not be the reason at all. It could be another reason that they make that particular decision. Um, but from a personal position, I would, um, you know, obviously my content is, um, it's very heavy and depending on how I'm feeling on a particular day, it can feel incredibly more heavy, um, you know, trying to weave a narrative between uh, the pieces is something that's really important to me to give context um, to what I'm trying to convey. And particularly in an environment where people aren't necessarily familiar with my work, I feel that there's a responsibility to um, make sure that people are given the greatest opportunity possible to understand the content and what the context is 
around that. Um, for example, a song like Australia Does Not Exist, which, like, straight off the bat, a lot of people might have no idea what I'm talking about. So that piece in particular is a great example of why it's so important for me, particularly in, like, these kind of events where you've, you know, it's a free event. Most of the people there potentially haven't heard my music. So there's a, you know, responsibility, I feel, to just make sure that people understand um, the context of the work. So, um, you know, to perform at 1 p.m. Um, with, like, it could be considered mature um, audience content, mm. um, you know, giving people col- um, decolonization 101 mm. <laughs> in a pretty heavy way at 1 p.m. on a Sunday at a family-orientated festival. I don't know if that's the right programming decision. Mm. Um, my gut instinct says it's not the right programming decision. Mm. Um, when you have a variety of other opportunities to to program that content at a maybe a time in the day when just energies are a little bit different mm. and maybe maybe ready for it and maybe I mean I guess there's the, con- the conversation around value of the content and what is considered the most valuable time in the day to position certain artists and I guess there were more people there during later in the day. So if that content is valued as supposed to have been put in front of the the most amount of eyes possible, then you would say, um, you know, my set or a set like that maybe should have been on much later in the day. Mm. So, um, from that stance, um, you know, I guess I'm curious what the programmers were thinking. Um, but, um, yeah, I thought it was a very interesting decision. And, yeah, it can be complex as a performer, um, yeah, where you get programmed. And as a, a First Nations artist who, you know, we could be many places instead of performing. We could be out in our communities um, helping our people. Um, so if we're going to be on a stage, we want it to have the most value uh, possible to impact people. Um we want it to penetrate society and have an impact for change. And that's not all Indigenous artists. Some people prefer to fly under the radar and write songs not about our rights. Mm. Um, I don't feel like at this point I have a choice but to write the songs that I write. And, yeah, I hope that they can reach the most people possible. So in that regard, yesterday, that wasn't the case. So, yeah, it's just it's interesting to um, walk away and I guess wonder what people are thinking when they're programming. Um, mm. And I yeah. also think... And again, I don't want to judge like programmers because sometimes like their decision is something else entirely different. So I really don't know, but it's definitely... Um, I would always prefer to perform to more people than less. Mm. And I think also um, that a lot of programmers lack the insight or thought into bringing Aboriginal people into spaces, such as the St Kilda Festival. Um, like, I myself, yeah, I did want to do a lot of interviews. There were a lot of mob that were performing there yesterday. But there was also this huge police presence um, and just the atmosphere in general was, um, yeah, just really difficult to have conversations with people. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. How did you feel being in that space yesterday? Yeah, yeah, it's... um. Like, it's obviously, it's a big event, 
as they proclaim the biggest free music festival in the whole land, which, um, you know, it's obviously a big responsibility to take on. Um, I guess, yeah, how do you balance having the biggest event but making sure that it feels inclusive and safe and um, and not requiring uh, mechanisms such as policing, like how do you have something big but not do that? And, you know, there's definitely obviously work happening in those spaces where a lot of festivals, for example, are, are doing work to try and ensure that, you know, you can have a big um, audience attendance but not even have security or, mm. you know, have um, a more, you know, a softer approach to having security, which, you know, just might be a different type of security person with a different type of title, different type of uniform and all of those things. So, um, like, St Kilda Festival is set up to be big. Mm. Like, it's about numbers there. It's about making sure those numbers come back every year as well. Mm. Um, it's interesting, like, as a free festival, I don't know the economics behind that event and, um, you know, who's supporting it. I haven't really researched the event in extreme detail in terms of all of that. But um, I think it's great that they programmed a lot of Indigenous artists. I think that's fantastic. But, like, there needs to be more than just programming First Nations artists. And, again, I don't know who was involved in that team, you know, whether there was a First Nations person who contributed to, um, you know, how that programming was done. Um, for example, there were three Indigenous artists, Kiam, Bumpy and Birds, all performed at the same time. Mm. I wondered um, who made that decision. Was it an Indigenous person that made that decision or or was it just like by chance that that happened Um because for me, that was problematic from wanting to be able to attend all of those sets mm. um, because over the next few hours, there was no Indigenous artists on at the whole festival. So you could have actually spread them out and then people could have seen all of those artists and you could have made a whole day of just watching the Indigenous acts if you wanted to, which could have been really cool. So I, I really wondered about that decision and in terms of um, like creating an Indigenous like space that's fully considered within that festival. Um, I mean, walking around the festival, which wasn't the music program stages, that made me feel like indigeneity wasn't necessarily considered across the board um, because I guess like so much of St Kilda Festival is not just the stages. The stages are quite spread out, mm. so a large part of the festival is walking from stage to stage and all of the things that are set up in those areas. So I guess for me, I would have loved to see more indigeneity spread throughout those areas. And in terms of like thinking about police presence and all of those things, I think that wouldn't have been as pertinent on my mind if I felt that there was more indigeneity um, spread around the whole um, festival site so that people like actually knew that they were on you know, Kulin Nation's land. There was a lot of tourists there, and I felt like it's a great opportunity for um, for tourists to be able to get an insight into indigeneity. So, again, like, you know, I'm not trying to judge the event, but um, just from an Indigenous-like strength and Indigenous um, value perspective, 
in terms of like if you go to that day, are you going to automatically just as like a regular punter who's not informed before the day walk away with a greater understanding of the value of indigeneity to this land? I'm not sure if that would have happened um, unless by chance you stumbled upon one of the stages where one of the indigenous artists performed on. So I feel like more could definitely be done and that would um, you know, have a trickle effect into all different aspects of the festival and maybe when there's more indigenous spaces around the festival, people might feel more safer mm. and then they might be like, oh, wait, like there was less violence, there was less, um, you know, poor behaviour in other ways. Um, maybe we need less police officers because we had this, this and this, mm. which um, kind of mitigated the need for that and, and showed when you have those things like a strong... Um, indigenous presence, like you might have a stage there or an area in between the stages where there's someone doing like smoking ceremonies intermittently through the day or something like that. I feel, um, you know, if you incorporate things like that automatically, you're going to have a much safer environment. And in time, um, I think the stats would show that you wouldn't need as much policing and things like that. Mm. Um, and now on to music. What is in the works for Dreaming Now? Are you going to be creating new music? Um, yeah, tell us more. Yeah, sure, yeah. Um, yeah, so I've got an album which has been in the works for quite a while. Um, it's an interesting process. It's my first album that I've ever worked on. And, um, yeah, we were talking about this, like, off the air earlier, the complexities of of juggling, um, creating and um, surviving as a First Nations person. In contemporary society, um, as an artist who doesn't get paid as much as some people, I do have to work a job as well. Mm. <laughs> and um, I do have um, community responsibilities. There are um, great difficulties going on regularly for our people, of which I often put my hand up to be involved in. That's my decision. Nobody else's decision to make, but I make those decisions. And, um, yeah, it does mean... Maybe there's there's not a, not as many hours in the clock as what would be ideal to create. Um, so yes, working on an album. Um, but one thing that's definitely been interesting in the whole period of working on it is, like I really see, you know, there's so much value um, for those who are able to to be able to work full time on their music projects, and for those artists that get paid. 10 to 20,000 per gig or grew up wealthy, mm. um, you know, that's great that they get to do that. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm not one of those people. And so um, the album's in the works and it's coming. Um, you know, I guess it comes intermittently in terms of the creative process. Um, for me, it's generally, you know, and particularly with the Dreaming Now project, um, I don't feel like I could, you know, at least within the energy and everything that I have, like just write a thousand and one songs. Mm. And, and obviously, like a lot of songs I write, if they're not about a certain thing, they just wouldn't be able to come under this project. Mm. Like everything in this project has to be about First Nations people. Um, it has to be about our liberation in some kind of way or the, you know, the seeking of liberation for our people's empowerment. I'm um, seeking of greater understanding of 
the true essence of like what it means to live and be in this country respectfully. Um, mm. So, um, you know, songs like that don't just drop out of the air all the time, I guess. And like, I'm totally happy about that because like if I felt like I could just write a thousand and one songs constantly, I don't know if that would be um, the most appropriate thing given the content. Like each particular piece, there's there's so much um, value to it um, for me. And like I, I always talk about Australia does not exist mm. because, you know, that was the first song of this whole project. And like for me, I feel like I could build a whole set around that one song. Mm. Um, you know, you could do so much else alongside that. You could... And you could write a book, <laughs> um, you know, and read that to people and then just perform the one song and that could be a set. Um, you know, so every single piece is a big story. It's a, it's a big chapter in the um, experience of our peoples. Um, my experience in um, perceiving the experience of our peoples, um, perceiving my own experiences and trying to make that into a story that's understandable for people. Um, that said, it, not always, because I get carried away with words um, mm. pretty badly. And, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm trying to learn to be better, but sometimes, you know, I don't abide by that. <laughs> I just write pieces that are extremely metaphorical and complex and people got no idea what I'm talking about. But, mm. um, yeah, so it's, you know, it's a complex process, but, um, but I always want to give respect to that process. So... Um, yeah, there's creation happening, um, and I'm grateful for any time, you know, I get that inspiration. Um, it might be um, not there some weeks. It might not be there some months. Um, but the times when it's there, it's um, it's incredibly beautiful, and I'm, I'm grateful for that. Um, not everybody gets to be in a position as a First Nations person to be able to be in that space, which it does take a, a degree of groundedness and um, clarity and um, a certain sense of openness to be able to receive that inspiration, which um, not everybody has that. Um, not everybody gets to have those kind of moments. A lot of our people are under siege constantly. Mm. And they will never have that their whole lives. So um, I'm very privileged. I'm a privileged Indigenous person in many ways. And... Um, you know, I don't take that lightly. So really grateful. Um, there is an album. You know, it's it's going to be on the way to people um, yeah. at some stage um, this year. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I really look forward to, you know, getting to that point, to delivering that to people. Um, I don't even know what an album really means. Mm. <laughs> but I guess for me what it feels like is just a complete story mm. um, that I started with the start of this project with um, Australia Does Not Exist a couple of years ago. Mm. You're listening to 855am 3CR Thursday morning breakfast and you're listening to a conversation that I had with Neil Morris, um, Yorta Yorta man who is the um, heads up Dreaming Now. And now we're going to play a track actually by Dreaming Now. Uh, and this one's called Australia Does Not Exist. Australia. 
I also want to ask you what was your experience like of recreating that track as well with having Kian on it? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it was really interesting, um, like the initial um, process and how that all came to be. It was um, like that was a, just like a massive um, experience in of itself in terms of how that went from me first, like having that throughout my poems and such, and then like meeting Adrian Eagle and him and I talking a lot about different things and 
spending a lot of time together jamming and all of that before like it got to the point that like this track would come to be as it did um you know that was you know quite a process and um you know I've got full respect and love for that process and I wouldn't be where I am today um without that process and having gone down like me as a hip-hop artist I wasn't really you know trying to go and be that um like in one way like Adrian and actually Paul Gorey as well they were they were two people who were like you need to record some hip-hop and I was like I'm not sure (laughs) (laughs) and I was like yeah brother you need to um and I was still like but I'm not a rapper (laughs) but you know I, I did it and I'm grateful for the support of like both of those brothers um in those times prior to me releasing hip hop to encourage me to do it as a thing. Um, but, you know, moving forward to doing the track with Kian, that was, um, I guess I kind of felt like once Kian started to perform the track with us, um, live, that like every incarnation of everything happens for a reason, but, um, like to have a, an indigenous woman sing that song, there's just nothing else like that. Our sisters' voices are so crucial moving forward. To me, they're the most crucial voices in this whole land. So when Kian sings Australia Does Not Exist, to me, that's that's enormous. I don't know how much people grasp that overall, but everybody that's seen her perform um, that song live, particularly in... Um, spaces where it's heavily First Nations audience, it's a whole other experience. Mm. It's just, it's a, you know, to use a Western term, it's a religious experience. It's a <laughs> spiritual experience. It's transformational. You know, it's like the building that we're standing in just fades away and like what she's saying, it's brought into that moment. And that's, we get that as First Nations people to the fullest. I don't know how much other people get that, but we get that to hear one of our own people. So, like, I have to chime in and say, like, Adrian Eagle, like, he's not First Nations to this land, but he's an ally. And he did a great allyship thing to put himself forward for Australia does not exist. Um, but ultimately, you know, the, the highest power in that track, um, for me at the moment, is to hear it sung by uh, a First Nations person and a woman. Mm. Like, even if it was another brother, for me, it wouldn't be, like, of that that power mm. that that Kian brings to it. So I think, um, you know, I, I actually haven't put that on Spotify yet. Um, I want to make sure when I do do that that I, you know, give that moment the fullest respect as well possible um, so it gets as much attention as possible because mm. it's a, like, it's an extraordinary feat um for me that she was willing to before even releasing any content of her own um be so willing to um attach her name to a project that's so provocative and um too much for a lot of people Mm. like i'm not getting put on like the biggest stages in the music industry in this country I'm not getting put on Eurovision, you know, mm. Australian representatives, you know, auditions. Um, I'm not getting put on, on any of the big stages. And for whatever the reason it is, I mean, I'm talking about 
shaking the whole foundations of, you know, this so-called idea of Australia. And um, a young sister has committed to being a part of that, um, not only in the live performance version of that, but a recorded version of that. And I just think that, um, like, so much respect is deserved um, to Kian for making that very powerful decision. And, um, you know, she should be celebrated um, for years to come for, you know, that. I, I I hope, you know, when I'm an elder, which isn't far away, <laughs> um, <laughs> that, you know, that I, I can sit there and, and I could just be, you know, eavesdropping on conversations and people could be talking about, oh, that track, what was it called? Australia does not exist. And, yeah, there's this, you know... Sister on there, um, Kian, like there was a sister singing about that mm. in 2019. Mm. Um, how powerful was that? Because that's impacted on, you know, this, this and this. Mm. Um, so, you know, I, I believe in that power. And, yeah, I just I hope that for that commitment that she's made um, in the long term, it gets recognized um, more than anything I've done, honestly. Um, like I'm just doing what I feel I'm supposed to be doing. But mm. um you know, as a young person, like, I did not record anything like that. Yeah. Um, it took me a while to get to the point to be able to release this kind of content. Mm. Like, I wasn't sure for a while, um, you know, if music was the right medium for it or if even words were enough. Mm. Um, it took me quite a bit of thinking to to just let go and be like, okay, I'm going to do this. But um, Kian did that at the age of 21. And... Um, just powerful and full respect um, and love and just, yeah, I'm just in awe of Kian as an artist and a human. Mm. <laughs> Thanks for sharing. <laughs> uh, and just, yeah, continuing to talk about shaking the foundations and I really want to get your thoughts on how people and also how the music industry can really change um, to make sure that Indigenous peoples are not only, like, on stage, but also, like, behind the scenes, producing, also doing, like, the sound technician work, you know, actually being, yeah, instrumental in all parts of the music industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think people need to recognise um, that we aren't, um, it's not about equality and, like, us just, like, being another... Um, stakeholder group that needs to be represented. Mm. Um, I think that's a perspective that maybe some people have. Maybe it's not like a lot or maybe it is a lot. Um, So it's not about us just having a spot at the table. It's about people recognising that First Nations um, impact in terms of leadership is crucial to like particularly music of all things like it's a sacred um component to our law processes like it's not just for fun although we enjoy it Mm. but like it's spiritual sacred highest of importance intertwined into you know our, our greatest exchanges as first nations peoples with each other historically um i feel that there needs to be a grasping of that to some degree and that when you allow First Nations peoples to take a leadership role within music, what you're doing is acknowledging Indigenous law. When you don't enable First Nations people to take leadership within music in this country, you're 
disregarding and breaking Indigenous law willfully. Um, I mean, you might not know, but if I told you that, that you're breaking law and then you continue to do it, well, from my perspective, you're breaking Indigenous law. So um, I guess it, it's going to take an understanding from people to be aware that, like, we're talking about Indigenous law here, we're talking about sacred responsibility, we're not talking about a corporate um, opportunity, we're not talking about, um, you know, economic um, opportunity being the driving, you know, motivation behind it, although, mm. like, economic opportunity for Indigenous people is crucial because, like, hey, we've got to survive. Um, economic opportunities is basically just resources which, you know, need to be redistributed um, to create a sense of justice within society. So, um, you know, ultimately it's about people realising the fullness of Indigenous responsibility, like allow us to fulfil our responsibilities as First Nations people, like you're depriving us of fulfilling our opportunities by creating structures that block us out. Mm. And, you know, in 2020, people should be somewhat across that or trying to be across that. And I think people who are wanting to disregard that, like, when we look at the fires, this, this is why we've got, this is why we had the fires. Mm. Because blatant disregard for First Nations knowledge systems, the globe over, global warming, whatever you want to call it, it's happened because of disregard of First Nations people. That's the first and foremost fault that was in hand. So, you know, that goes over to the music industry as well. Um, you know, there's, there's blatant disregards to First Nations people and it's, you know, if it continues, then the music industry is just complicit to all of the other things that are destroying the planet. Mm. And on that note, how is that fundraiser going? Um, yeah, it's, um, it's, you know, obviously raised quite a, you know, a solid chunk of finances for communities. Um, I guess, um, like, there's much more needed than what that fundraiser could have provided. Um, you know, there's lots of, people lost a lot of stuff. Um, there needs to be a lot of support. Um, yeah, so, you know, the fundraiser is going to help, you know, in some kind of way, um, to certain community members. Um, hopefully, you know, it can get as much help as possible to as many community members as possible. Um, but, you know, the, the thing I hope for the most is that it's raised some awareness and that above and beyond what it's been able to do in its own terms, that there's just so much else that, um, people can keep doing and, like, really recognize that like there's First Nations refugees, you know, as a result of this experience and mm. that's just horrendous and it, you know, it should never happen. There's wealthy people who lost things in that fire who are going to have other contingency plans in how to take care of themselves. There's First Nations people who don't have that opportunity. Um, so ongoing, like these are the risks that we have of more and more of these things happening. Um, we've got more minds that want to open up. Mm. We had the, you know, forced closures, um, you know, thing with Tony Abbott a few years ago. Those things are going to keep coming, and we need people to support us um, to mitigate against 
those things occurring and when things hit the fan we need people there ready to support um, because we're in a in a state of um, under-resourced um, position mm. and powerlessness in, in a lot of regards um, and you know where that power is shifted to there needs to be a recognition of that and an understanding that there's a, a degree of justice within you know, redistributing that power. Absolutely. <laughs> um, and I think that, yeah, like coming back to the music industry, that the music industry needs to understand that, you know, all that is happening in the world and that when you are bringing Indigenous peoples, you know, into those music spaces, that they carry all of that with them as well. It's not just this isolated event. Um, and I guess lastly, I just want to ask you, like, how many times has somebody, you know, um, booked you and then been in conversation with you about how you want to be in that space on stage and who else you want to bring with you? Like, how many times is there a conversation and are mm. you paid for that conversation if there is, all of that other labour? Um, yeah, I don't know if I've ever been asked. Um, I mean... Yeah, a couple of times, you know, a few times. Um, or sometimes people will just ask me to curate something. Mm. Um, so, yeah, actually, it's happened, you know, and it's happening um, within certain circles, definitely. Um, you know, certain circles, particularly in this city, where people, um, they don't want to be the one doing it wrong mm. or, you know, they want to do what they can to do things Right, so in that circumstance, they might offer some sort of curatorial opportunity, um, which they might word that, you know, they want me to perform, but they also, you know, would like me to pick a few artists that I would like to, to have involved as well, um, which, you know, I really take on, um, and appreciate the kindness of heart that, you know, those people are, you know, entering with. So, that's still the minority, like mm. the majority of the time. It's, you know, the, the people just, you know, they're the programmer for their event and they will curate it how they want um, and where you get put is where you get put mm. on the lineup. Um, sometimes there's, you know, negotiation that's possible. Like I might get put on a lineup somewhere where I'm, I'm unsure if it's, a place that suits and have a negotiation with people to just try to understand why they're making that decision and um, sometimes provide my perspective on how I think something different might work better and I guess we're entitled to that conversation as um, artists or, you know, that's the work an agent would do as well is, you know, have that negotiation as well so... It never has to be a flat, you know, yes or no. And that took me a while to learn that. Like, um, I didn't necessarily know you could have those conversations when I mm. started out as a musician. Nobody necessarily tells you that, like, hey, you can negotiate um, before you take things on. So, yeah, there's, there's definitely, um, you know, a mixed variety of that, certainly. Mm. Well, thank you so much for... Um 
yeah, coming into the studio this morning, Neil, to have a conversation with me about what's been happening with the Dreaming Now project um, and what's on the horizon. Really excited to hear your new um, album. Thank you for having me. Hi, everyone. My name's Robbie Thorpe. I'm with 3CR Community Radio. Every year we have a subscription drive. It's a way of supporting our organisation maintain itself through the year and we rely on the support of the, the community. One way to do that is to subscribe and become a member. Become part of this organisation itself. Get in contact with 3CR. You can go to the website 3cr.org.au or you can ring on 9419 3CR ensures that our voices, Aboriginal voices, are heard on this radio station. So it's a good way of supporting Aboriginal people as well by becoming a subscriber for 3CR Community Radio. You're listening to 855am 3CR Thursday morning breakfast and your host this morning are Carly and Max. Um, and just before you heard a conversation that I had with Yorta Yorta man, Neil Morris, um, who's the front man of Dreaming Now. Um, and yeah, we really wanted to plug Subscriber Drive this morning. So, Max... Yeah, so Subscriber Drive is different to Radiothon, which happens later in the year, but this is an excellent opportunity to show your support for community radio like Thursday Breakfast, Legends That We Are, um, and chip in for a subscription, because it's subscriptions that make this possible. We all run off the smell of an oily rag, <laughs> <laughs> um, and we need you all to subscribe. So if any birthdays are coming up, you know, it's a great gift idea. I actually have to renew my subscription today. I realise it just expired. Mm, so you can sc- subscribe now. Um, just call 94198377 or you can subscribe online, 3cr.org.au slash subscribe. And yeah, Community Radio provides a vital space for us to communicate and organise together free from vested corporate interests and the profit motive. So definitely encourage you to subscribe. What a show of strength we've got here today. Local issues. So I'm here at the school, kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMARC. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200, 250 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminuaya Mōbōhina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio, your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. And now joined on the line, we have Margaret Harvey. And she joins us to discuss the upcoming panel, Indigenous Women Filmmakers on Self-Representation and Sovereign Storytelling. The panel is part of Melbourne Women in Film Festival and is happening at 3.30pm Saturday, the 22nd of February. Welcome, Margaret. Oh, I'm just going to have to try Margaret again a bit later. Accent women. 
it seems so obvious to me that if you live in a in a completely violent um, cultural milieu, that it's going to translate into every aspect of women's lives. Accent women. What's a border? They don't see it like a big wall right along the. How can people live ordinary lives when they're living in such an extraordinary situation where there are two, where there are armies there and terrorists there, such conflict every single day of their lives? Accent women. A show by and about women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. On Community Radio 3CR. We jail black males in Australia nationally at a rate five times greater than apartheid South Africa jailed black males in 1993. The suicide and self-harm rates are the highest in the world and the life expectancy gap is the biggest in the first world. You know, Australians don't like hearing the truth about how bad things are, but the more we resolve from it, the longer this is going to continue. Black fella, white fella, it doesn't matter what you colour. Mainstream media is not interested in this stuff. It doesn't find space to talk truthfully and deeply about issues that affect all Australians. The only place predominantly you will find that with any real depth is on community radio, and 3CR has been one of the great leaders in that. So if people are wondering where they should spend their hard-earned cash, I would suggest 3CR is a bloody good place to start. What your name is, we got the hell. Lots of changes, we need more brothers. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. And now we are joined by Margaret Harvey. Um, and so she is going to be discussing the upcoming panel, Indigenous Women, Filmmakers on Self-Representation and Sovereign Storytelling. And that panel is part of the Melbourne Women in Film Festival that's happening this Saturday. Welcome, Margaret. Hello. Thank you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thanks for coming on uh, 3CR. So you've just recently completed your PhD at Monash University titled Caring for Saibai Island Stories. Can you tell us a little bit more about this research? Um, so what this research, I suppose, is, is centred around is how we care for stories. And um, uh, the name of this actual um, panel that I'm sitting on that Romaine Morton is um, chairing is, is, a set, is set around sovereign storytelling, which is actually a new um, term to me, but it's essentially what um, has been a part of my creative practice, in, creative practice, sorry, in theatre making and in and in film. Um, and I actually talk about it within my thesis in terms of caring for stories. So um, the actual work that I did was uh, connected uh, very closely to my clan group of Saibai Island in the Torres Strait. Um, the Aitkadel clan, Crocodile clan. And it was working with story and with knowledge um, in a way that treated story as a living entity and as an entity that's interconnected in this complex web of cultural knowledge. You know, we're, we're all completely aware, um, whatever cultural background you're from, that um, story's got the power to change the, to change the truth. And so it's got to be cared for in a way that you know, as far as I was concerned and still am today when I tell stories, it supports the reclamation of the silence, the ignored and the misinterpreted Indigenous voice. And that really is um, 
what my um, work and my thesis with my clan group is mm. um, inherently about, yeah. And your work centres cultural knowledge in response to issues like climate change and rising sea levels. How does this translate into your film and performance work? Um, you know, that's such a good question because, you know, as, as a society we're inundated with the science and the Western research on cultural knowledge. And, you know, what I feel is missing um, is the holistic connection to the environment, you know, the heartfelt connection um, which is a part of Indigenous cultural philosophy. It's a part of our ethos, um, how we interact with the environment, how we live with the environment. It's a part of us. Um, and so that's, that's where my work begins from. It begins from that place of knowing that um, the term climate change, you know, adapt, adaption and resilience, stems from a place of being at one with the land and the changing environment and the interaction we have with it. So that combined also with, you know, the fearful nature that we as humans take on in terms of when we hear the news that's happening in the world, when we hear the science and we hear the research around it, um, it's approaching it from a way that... Um, can, can really connect the heart and soul and open us up to moving through the fear around climate change, to then being active and mobilising ourselves around it and adapting and, um, yeah, moving forward through that. So that, that's the, the live performance work that I'm working on at the moment really begins from that place. Mm, so powerful. And connecting heavily, yeah, and connecting heavily the cultural knowledge. The cultural knowledge really is, is the key because it, it, it really comes from the Indigenous philosophy. So that's really the essence of the live performance work that I'm working on. And for you, how does filmmaking form an important part of self-determination for Torres Strait Islander communities? You know, film can reach a mass of people. It can reach so many people more than live performance can. Um, and live performance is ephemeral once it's been done it's you know, it's, it's gone. Live uh, film can stay um, in the canon for however long it, it you know, it survives in, in the canon, but it, it, it's always there. And I think that the, us as Indigenous filmmakers in regards to reclaiming our narrative, you know, a narrative that's been um, misinterpreted and, um, you know, ignored and silenced, um, is really about telling our stories our way. And that's the important. It's, it's, important, it's important to reclaim our voices um, in the discussion around our people. Um, yeah, yeah. And that's where I see film as being the pivotal medium and being able to, to do this. Fantastic. And for listeners, um, the Indigenous Women Filmmakers on Self-Representation and Sovereign Storytelling is happening at the Melbourne uh, Women in Film Festival and it's happening at 3.30pm this Saturday, the 22nd of February. No, I um, think that's... Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, when, yeah, no, no, that's right. 22nd. <laughs> My apologies. <laughs> um, and there are also a number of other events happening in this film festival. Is there anything else that you're looking forward to watching, Margaret? 
Oh my goodness, that's a good. I'm looking forward to Erica Glynn, um, Glynn's film, and I can't remember at the top of my head, but that's screening in the aftermath of um, the panel that I'm sitting on. But yeah, I, I love watching Indigenous female filmmakers work. It comes from a different place, um, mm. and it's so driven by the matriarch and that long lineage of, of women. Um, you know, the, the Indigenous woman's line, the First Nation, of we, you know, that plants us to the earth. So you, you know. I, and it's a very contemporary voice. So yeah, I do love I do love watching other other indigenous female filmmakers. Yeah, fantastic. And how can listeners um, engage with your work? Um, well, I am part of a production company called the the Josie Sparks, and so um, we I suppose that we have we've got a Facebook. Um, a, Platform that we share a lot of our work through and a lot of the docos um, that we've made and that we're continuing to make for NITV, um, we list them on that on that particular page. We've also got a Vimeo um, link on that page that people can watch watch our work, but they can see um, how this live performance of this climate change piece called Gubbles Diamond for uh, the Winds of Change, how it. Um, you know, our creative process. So we're going to have a platform where, where audiences and potential other community members that won't get to see the piece are able to witness the creative process and how we care for the story and um, be a part of it still. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Margaret, for joining us here on 3CR this morning. Thank you for having me. And just then I was speaking with Margaret Harvey um, and she was speaking about an upcoming panel, Indigenous Women Filmmakers on Self-Representation and Sovereign Storytelling, which is happening this Saturday. So I definitely encourage listeners to head along. Yeah, I spent three and a half years living on the street and I know what it's like to have no hope and not to feel a part of the society and I think that's where a lot of these people are. But I think we need to help people who are traumatised and help people get back on their feet and give them hope and help them um, feel like they're a part of the society again instead of just moving them on like they're an inconvenience. If it were not for ruminations, how would the views of those of us who have been homeless or are homeless, how would these views ever be aired? How would they ever be expressed? Subscribe to the station that gives airtime to people with a lived experience of homelessness. Support 3CR. to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55am on the 13th of February. And up next, we're going to be chatting with Adolf Mora who is an activist and refugee from West Papua who was detained in Christmas Island in 2006. Good morning, Adolf. Good morning, um, Max and everybody. Good morning to you. 
Thanks so much for joining us this morning to talk about the the recent rally that happened in Melbourne and elsewhere as well um, against the the visit by Joko Dodo, the Indonesian president, to Australia. Can you tell us a bit about why what has brought Joko Dodo to Australia and what was the rally about? Um, yeah, we did the rally uh, recently um, for the Jacobitos visit. Um, that Jacobitos came into Australia it said addressing that um, he's very much doing the work between the Indonesian and also the Australian itself for the bilateral uh, economic politics and stuff. Um, president also planning to uh, to address trying to conceal the reality in West Papua from the world while he's while he's prepared uh, to tell lies to Australian Parliament. Parians, a dozen of West Papuan are facing years, even decades in prison. Uh, their crime is to have peacefully raised, you know, for their voice. As well, against the 57 uh, years of Indonesian resistance and colonization during uh, unprecedented Papuan still uprising until a lot with um, killing and silent genocide. Um, it's important that we did it, um, especially as well, he is in Australia, because um, uh, limitation for us to did um, while he's in Indonesia, it's hard um, for us to do that. So that's really good opportunity for us to uh, to do that for him while he's here. So it's getting interrupted, and also be with Australian government itself. So understanding um, while he's here, we need to make him make him to to aware of what's going on. He's not just came out talking about Indonesian. Um, Sovereignty, but also for the um, West Papuan uh, future as well. They tell tell a lot of lies that it'll be more Australia um, aid will be sending over to Indonesia, but it'll be it'll be wasted to use very much. That's mm-hmm. why we thought this is um, unjustice for him to visit Australia and try to get um, a lot of support and. From Australia itself as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Adolf, what were some of the demands of the of the protests that happened in Melbourne and elsewhere against Jocko Widodo's visit? Um, <laughs> it's we we really we we're really hoping that when well his visit um, he's going back to. Um, Indonesia is just looking at the uh, um, student activists and uh, prisoners still still in uh, jail and stuff in back in Indonesia and also of course it was Papua as well um, has to be has to be released all the uh, prisoners and students and from the uh, Indonesian jail yeah. and. Because yeah, on on Thursday breakfast we have been you know trying to cover um, issues around West Papua and self determination, you know always and particularly ever since the the protests that began in August last year. Um, 
Can you give us a bit of an update of of how things are going in terms of the the movement for self determination in West Papua, and to you know the 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 movement against um, Indonesian repression in West Papua? Yeah. Um, we for the, for the, all the West Papua uh, freedom fighter and also the activists and the whole uh, West Papua community and the members. Um, we know when we fight against Indonesia, we don't have powers very much against the authority. Um, a good, a good things that we're trying to uh, not doing it using the non-violent uh, movement. It's very much we're doing a lot of uh, peaceful uh, rally demonstration and things like that. We came down with a guitar and ukulele and things like that uh, during the protest. Uh, we call ourselves a peaceful demonstration, and also um, the West Papua itself has um, a former group um, called uh, ULMWP. Uh, this group, it very much represents the whole uh, West Papua nation, and that's the um, um, big massive umbrella as a, as a leader that so they're going to negotiate negotiate. Uh, all around the world as well. Uh, they, the negotiator, and has been pointed to um, staying around some of the walls uh, to very much negotiate with all the countries for free uh, justice very much in West Papua, but also um, through the movement in, in West Papua, we highly demand that the United uh, Nation has to touch mm. in West Papua, has to get into the West Papua to see uh, the reality and what's going on in West Papua. Mm. There's still a lot of um, killing even until 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 now. We talk um, still kidnapping going on back in West Papua as well. Uh, towards a lot of um, student and activists. Because that was one of the, the demands of the rally, wasn't it, to, um, for Joko Widodo to allow the UN High Commissioner, Michelle Bachelet, um, into West yeah. Papua, because it hasn't been allowed, has it? Exactly. That's yeah. what we're hoping has to be um, anyone going to West Papua. Because um, in the past, Last year, uh, we saw visitors from the um, Pacific Island Nation groups as well um, try to go to West, went to West Papua and they couldn't uh, have access to go through to West Papua. They only just mm-hmm. run in Jakarta, and that's where very much um, nothing to be to be told, and it's all been covered by mm-hmm. the Indonesians. Um, it's very tricky. To yeah. be honest, um, with Indonesian government, it's they very smart and they're very tricky. They one of the biggest um, smart people as well that we should um, <coughs> understand. The government it's massive, massive um, life. Mm. And Adolf, we're going to have to wrap up there. But what can listeners do to show their support for for West Papua and self determination? Um, Yes, um, through your local um, 
Council, you can write a letter um, for the uh, support and petition to uh, send the justice and peaceful to Papua, and um, you can write a letter to United Nations as well that people in West Papua are suffering. So we hoping with your um, letter will be will be make a change with the petition as well. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Adol, for joining us this morning. Thank you. Thanks for your having me. You're on 3CR Thursday breakfast, 8.55am. We were just chatting with West Papuan activist Adolf Mora about the rally that happened in Melbourne a few days ago against Indonesian President Joko Widodo's visit to Australia. I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. Jail black males in Australia nationally at a rate five times greater than apartheid South Africa jail black males in 1993. The suicide and self-harm rates are the highest in the world and the life expectancy gap is the biggest in the first world. You know, Australians don't like hearing the truth about how bad things are, but the more we resolve from it, the longer this is going to continue. Black fella, white fella, it doesn't matter what you colour. Mainstream media is not interested in this stuff. It doesn't find space to talk truthfully and deeply about issues that affect all Australians. The only place predominantly you will find that with any real depth is on community radio, and 3CR has been one of the great leaders in that. So if people are wondering where they should spend their hard-earned cash, I would suggest 3CR is a bloody good place to start. What your name is, we got the hell. Lots of changes, we need more brothers. You're on 3CR Thursday breakfast, 8.55am. And up next, we're chatting to Eddie Sinot, Centre Manager of the Indigenous Law Centre and Wumba Wumba Lawyer. Good morning, Eddie. Morning, how are you? Very well, thank you. So this morning, we're going to be chatting about the recent, much-anticipated High Court decision in Lovin Commonwealth and Toms and Commonwealth. Can you just give us a bit of a backstory about how did we how did we land here? What's What's been going on? Yeah, so I think... Before you know, you address all of the more you know people think about the obvious indigenous implications of this case. It's all in the context of our federal government's attempt to deport people that they're not happy with, basically. Mm. Um, so this pretty heinous policy that they have. Um, and we know New Zealand's had quite a problem with it as well. People that have been in this country for a very long time and very much belong here and you know have their roots here, their families, they've lived you know most of their lives here, but happen to be foreign citizens or have been born overseas. So when they commit a crime, um, the government has been using the Migration Act to remove their visa or remove their right to be in Australia and to send them back. So the two two Aboriginal men in this case, one born in New Zealand and one born in Papua New Guinea, both of them not Australian citizens, um, but spent you know large living parts of their life here that belong here and then also belong here as Aboriginal people. So rather than challenge 
um, from their perspective on some of the other kind of avenues that people have been trying to challenge this law. Um, both of these gentlemen put forward that as Aboriginal people, they have a unique status um, in this country, which is recognised by Australia's common law through native title. Um, you know, native title did, through Mabo, recognise that basically we were here before the British and we continue today and, and we have rights because of that. And then the court had to look at whether or not um, this very kind of narrow power that's in the Constitution called the aliens power, um, whether or not that could be applied to Aboriginal people. And for, for listeners who might not be like familiar with this term, aliens, what does that mean? Yeah, yeah so it's got a very old kind of feudal um, English common law meaning. Um, so it's all about uh, how you owe an allegiance to someone. So before we even talk about, you know, citizenship or anything like that, citizenship isn't defined in the Constitution. Um, it's, um, you know, used by the immigration and um, power and the alien power that the Commonwealth Government has a Citizenship Act. But the only thing that's actually mentioned in the Constitution is this alien's power. Um, so, you know, the case mentions a couple of the things that go all the way back to the um, kind of 1600s in the UK. And so traditionally it was based on, you know, where you were born or your blood connection to somewhere, or you can be kind of naturalised and you can owe an allegiance to someone. And um, the way the court, I guess, has addressed it in this instance is that um, based on the constitutional meaning or what the court believes the constitutional meaning of alien to be, um, it would basically be ridiculous to consider that Aboriginal people could possibly belong to anywhere else other than this country. And so um, they couldn't be deemed or, or the aliens' power couldn't apply to us as a people. Mm. And, I mean, I guess for, from, from a you know, common sense perspective or for most 3CR listeners, yeah. I imagine that, you know, this, this very idea that Aboriginal people could be deported um, by being considered quote-unquote aliens under the Constitution is totally preposterous. And yet we've, you know, we've got this 177-page judgment that has come out, yep. um, you know, going through all the legal reasoning as to why or why not this should be the case. What types of arguments, I guess, were, were contained in that decision? Because, you know, it's not, I guess, it's importantly, it seems important to say that it's not just a simple victory because it was a 4-3 yeah. split decision. So, you know, there was a really strong dissent. Um, so it's not as yeah. though all the High Court judges were in agreement on this. What was that, that dissenting argument that was put forward? Yeah, I think just before that too, though, like, it's important to recognise what you did say about, you know, this is just a preposterous situation. Mm. <laughs> like, it's just, you know, um, I mean ridiculous but it's you know the history or the circumstances of our history that we end up in this kind of situation where we haven't been able to achieve greater reform in this country and we still end up with these questions before the court um but even with the minority judges i think it's important to point out too um because i know a lot of people have you know been well how can three of these judges say that we're aliens and the other ones you know said that we're not mm. and um the way you know it gets a little bit boring and technical for a lot of people and yeah, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter to people either. You know, the law impacts us all in different ways rather than just what it technically does. But the minority judges weren't necessarily saying, you know, that we're aliens and we can be deported. They were applying a pretty strict legal interpretation of what they thought the Constitution is, and they basically thought that it wasn't up to them to determine that and that what the other judges were doing um, was making policy or legislation decisions that should be left to Parliament. So it's a pretty, you know, generalised assumption 
or you know description of what those minority judges were doing because as you said there's seven separate judgments in there but the majority for different reasons has largely said um, no Aboriginal people are recognized in the common law already we have a unique status and this is just continuing on that it's just talking about how you can apply the alien power to that unique status and it doesn't apply and then the minority judges are basically saying you know we're not saying that you're an alien or a non-alien it's just we don't think, you know, under the strict constitutional meaning of it, um, we make this decision or it should be implied in that way and it should be... And then, you know, some of those ones explicitly saying it should be up to the parliament to be able to make that decision. Um, you know, but obviously for everyone out, you know, in the street, out in the community, um, that doesn't stop the feeling of, you know, well, hold on, you know, there's three judges are saying that we're aliens and they can kick us out of our own country, which... Yeah, we, we know we've been here forever. We, we know we exist. We don't need a court to tell us that. But unfortunately, that's the kind of legal system and the circumstance of history that we face now. Mm. And it's Carly here. And I think you make some really interesting points. So do you think that this case law and this precedent is strong enough um, to withhold any further, you know, um, things from the government where they are trying to try and uh, change legislation to make sure yeah, that people can I, be deported? I initially I thought it would be, but uh, after hearing the Attorney General yesterday t- explicitly talking about trying to find a way around this, mm. um, I thought it was pretty horrendous, uh, reprehensible. Um, I, you know, you'd hope that this shines a critical light on their policy in its entirety, not just towards Aboriginal people, but you know towards people that have lived you know 90 percent of their entire life here, and then they get deported back to um, places and. I think the large, you know, New Zealand has been a large, or, um, you know, our Kiwi brothers and sisters have had, you know, large impact of that as well. Um, so there is some contention over what the possibility of that could be. One of the minority judges even raised they could use the race power if they really wanted to, to target this, you know, very narrow group of Indigenous people that are born overseas that aren't citizens. Um, one would hope that the government wouldn't do that, but at the end of the day, um, that may be within their power, but as with all these kind of things, um, we wouldn't really know until they tried to do it and it was tested in the court. Um, I'm pretty confident that some of those things could be defeated based on this decision, but um, there's reason discussion that they might use the other power, which is the immigration power rather than alien power, um, to try and get around this and still be able to support people in this situation. But then that also depends on how the Constitution interprets and how the High Court would interpret what an immigrant is or what immigration means. Um, so, you know, there's no hard or fast answers. And then, obviously, with the seven separate judgments, there's no real unanimous position on all of those different contentions as well. So it's very hard to find a precedent for anything going forward other than the four that said the alien's power can't apply to Indigenous people. And even those four in saying that, They've all used um, different reasons for saying that as well, so it's not exactly a you know hard set precedent going forward. Mm. And Eddie, you know, constitutional law cases like this, you know, we don't see them very often. What does it sort of say about the fact, you know, the fact that this went all the way to the High Court? What does that say about how deeply threatened the sort of the, these foundational institutions of white Australia feel about? Yeah, I guess I, I guess about these questions of who of who is in and who is out, and these these abilities, these capacities that white Australia relies on to exclude. Um, yeah. I, I, I think it says a lot, and I think if we think about it, 
not so much the institutions themselves, right, because they're not abstracts or object identities. They're mm. filled with people and they, you know, they're supposed to represent us and serve us. So it's the people that are inhabiting them. It's the government, you know, and if we had a better culture of institutional reform in this country that was based on, you know, an attitude where we can actually have equal relationships, where Indigenous people are recognised for our rights and are respected and those rights are enforced, then things like changing the Constitution or changing Immigration Act or the Migration Act or things like that shouldn't come up as this, you know, such a scare to the foundations of the country. But as we all know, whenever we, you know, we race, we've been on this road for a long time. Um, you know, even yesterday, some of the Conservative commentators and the Attorney General himself was throwing around all these hyperbolic accusations about race and creating a new category of person and that, you know, this is going to cause all these problems of division and we should all be equal before the law. So there's that, you know, pernicious kind of argument about difference-blind liberalism and equality that is just ridiculous as well. So you're right, like, I, you know, I wouldn't say it's the institutions itself. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm a big advocate that institutions can and should be reformed and that they should work for us, not us, you know, kind of being oppressed by them all the time. But that comes along with, you know, being able to change societal attitudes and the people that inhabit those institutions and make the decisions as well. Mm. And just in the last few moments that we have, Eddie, what would you like to see happen from here? Um, more than anything else, um, I think regardless of where you sit in the community about whether you're in... I'm, a, I'm an advocate for constitutional reform and the Uluru Statement from the heart, whether you're more firmly in the treaty or the sovereignty camp or, you know, whatever it is, I think more than anything else, this has highlighted that the High Court and those kind of institutions are never going to be the place where we're going to be able to get the answers to those fundamental questions about our rightful place in this country. And it just really, you know, ups the ante or, you know, puts increased energy and opportunity behind um, actually needing to reform our institutions as a country to, one, respect our rightful place and be able to negotiate with us as equal peoples. Otherwise, you know, could be another two decades with no reform happening and we're in the same position and there's some um, some of our people before the court again having the same questions asked about them, which I think would be the worst case scenario. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much, Eddie, for joining us this morning. Not a problem. Thanks for having me on. You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55am. We've just been chatting with Eddie Sinor about the recent High Court case um, which found that Aboriginal people born overseas can't be deported under the so-called aliens' power in the Constitution. And that's all we've got time for on Thursday Breakfast this morning. Thank you, Max. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Great show. Everyone remember it's Subscriber Drive, so please subscribe. And we will be back next week. Have a good Thursday. Have a good Thursday.